My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Max Gladstone. He is a Hugo, Nebula, and Locus award-winning author. If you read speculative fiction at all, science fiction, fantasy, and, and the like, you know that's a pretty big freaking deal. He also, uh, this is so cute, he says in his bio, he is the author of many books. And I'm like, dude, Max is the author of many, 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 many books. He's incredibly prolific. I've, I have personally read only a fraction of his works, and they've become, quickly become some of my favorite, including Empress of Forever, the Serial Box series, Book Burners, and the book that serves as the centerpiece for our conversation today, Last Exit. What to say about Max as a writer, as a thinker, uh, sometimes I hear people describe other people as having a galaxy brain, and there's something a bit intimidating about that, but I choose to lean into the beauty of that. And Max is one of those people who I describe in a really beautiful way as having a galaxy brain, just deeply read, willing to think about and feel about many different aspects and dimensions of life and existence. And transmitting that as a thinker, as a storyteller, um, as a parent. By the way, this conversation took a long time for us to schedule because parenting plus pandemic plus full lives make it hard to sit down for an hour, an hour and a half. What I love about uh, Max's tagline on his website, it says, myths for hire. Right? And that, that just makes me smile from ear to ear because we are we are soaked in myth. Our every nation is a form of myth making and Max's capacity to both examine and take apart existing myths, which he does in last exit quite beautifully. And uh, also heartbreakingly the myth of America Uh, and also to build new myths, to build a myth around the question What happens when there's no other place to go, when you have come to the end of the road, a road that maybe you feel like you have been riding your whole life and you have arrived to the last exit? What lies beyond that threshold? And for a lot of us, that kind of question feels scary. And for most of the book, I I teased Max at some point in our conversation, for like 490 pages of this 500 or so page book, it is like, yeah, it feels scary, the answer to that question. But he's also willing to look, in a way, for me, the book is about going all the way to that threshold. And rather than turning back in fear, turning turning open towards the risk of falling, of losing, of loss, 
in hopes that you might see something beautiful waiting just out there beyond your current way of making sense of the world, your current philosophy, your beliefs, your identities. And Last Exit uh, did that for me as a reader in, a, in an incredibly powerful and provocative way. So I think that's all I need to say for now. Actually, no, I'll say one more thing. It takes us a while to actually start talking about the book because Max is such a galaxy brain that you could really pull on any thread with Max and he'll have something provocative and thoughtful to say. And and so we start a bit more uh, in what he described as a sort of a 2 a.m. philosophy school bull session. <laughs> and I lean into that if that sounds fun for you. And and then about halfway through the conversation, we really start to dig into his book, Last Exit. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to recommend right now that you go and read that. Uh, if you are at all into this um, a burgeoning world of fantasy and science fiction that's popping off all around us, um, Max is one of the forerunners right now, in my opinion, of really great storytelling in that context. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Max has for us. Max freaking Gladstone, we did it. We got you. We did here. it. We're here. I don't know what's going to happen next. Here but I am. If nothing else, we can celebrate. It was some time coming in the midst of pandemic and parenting and vocation and work and all the stuff. It was hard yes. to get here, but I'm really glad There's we finally made it happen. So many things, and yet here we are. It's good. <laughs> I think when we when I initially reached out to you, you you were close to or had just released your um, really fantastic book, Last Exit. And now here we are, uh, and you've, you are close to, or you've just released another book, Dead Country, which I've had the privilege of reading some of in advance of this conversation, and it's been really fun. So congrats on both of those. Thank you. Yes, it's been about a year in coming, but yeah, we do. Last Exit is now out there in the world, and uh, I find myself, as we're speaking right now, on the precipice of the release of Dead Country, which comes out March 7th. I don't know when this will reach all of you out there in podcast land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so we're we're really close to that to that that launch date. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it feels uh, it's this interesting sort of trembling state before a book comes out. You don't know who it's going to release to who it's going to reach or how it's going to affect people who have been following your work before you don't know mm. what it's going to do for you mm. you don't know what it's going to do in the world mm. it's uh mm. like sort of you get the kids off to kindergarten kind of thing that <laughs> i've experienced but then they kind of have to go out there and make their own friends and uh, it becomes a thing that's apart from you yeah so, mm. Strange. Yeah, I mean, a, a number of, I've heard a number of authors, but the one who comes to mind sort of most poignantly is Ursula Le Guin talking about how writing is in fact a collaborative act between you, the writer and the reader. It just so happens it takes place kind of out of time or out of synchronous, out of synchronous time, right? Like that collaboration can happen. Someone could pick up your book a hundred years from now, if books are still around and read it yeah. and engage with it and make meaning from it. You know, the creation of the space of the text happens in this. Where where do you locate it? It's in the writer somehow. Sometimes it's in the text, but then the text requires cultural context and uh, pacing and orientation in order to interpret. Mm. Then you have the reader, and what's the reader bringing to the page as well? Um, and yet, only two of these uh, 
objects, two of these elements are present at any given time, unless uh, sometimes the writer is literally reading over your shoulder as you're reading the text, <laughs> I guess. So sometimes maybe you can get all three, but it's not common and not always the most ergonomic. Yeah, right. And also to be like, if I was reading Dead Country and you suddenly turn around and saw you there, that would really change the quality of my own <laughs> reading of it. Max, can I have a little room with this before we yeah. have to talk to you about it? Mm, yeah, come on. <laughs> Isn't the author supposed to be dead or something? Didn't we do that? Well, as just a data point of one, um, and I, my memory may be a little fuzzy, but if I remember correctly, Tara Abernathy is the is the protagonist, the main character in your first book in the craft series. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It's yeah. the main character of Three Parts Dead. Yeah, yeah, which and I then, read. I mean, you know, I feel like you one of the things we'll talk about is the amount of output. Your amount of output is something we could explore, but it's a lot. And so it's been some time since I read that. So it was really fun for me to pick up the advanced reader copy of of, of Dead Country and be like, oh, I remember you. Yeah. Really, I, oh, actually, I remember my my imagination. You know, like there's this sort of like there's a way in which Tara is a, a part of me and that character. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Part of me. And I was like, oh, it's so fun to be back here and and just like I I wish I had had more time to read it because I actually am just eager to keep reading it. So that's uh, for what that's worth. There's one <laughs> one reader. I like it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we could experiment with the, with a the three uh, pronged option. You could just like sit here and read it, and I could watch you, and that, that would be weird in its own way. <laughs> I get the Wonder Dome can get pretty meta, but that feels like a bridge too far. Entirely, I mean, I don't know. Unless we don't care about anyone no, else, it's all good. It's all good. Um, no, it's true. I mean, I, I've been thinking about identity a lot um, for a number of reasons, uh, and it. Um, it strikes me that that's true of characters, that the sort of character exists, that exists in my mind is maybe not the character, exactly the character that exists in your minds that, you, you know, Tara, for example, means something maybe to you, you connected with her in some way. And um, it's probably not the same, exactly the same way that somebody else connected with her, with who had a different set of backgrounds and experiences, mm -hmm. um, different orientation. And it's probably a little bit different also from the way that I um, came to know Tara on the page as I was writing Three Parts Dead and as I was writing the books that came after it. But in that way, I don't know how different it is from, I don't know, anybody's reality. My lived experience as Max Gladstone, somebody who's sort of navigating the world uh, is like it matters. It's true. It's real. But there's also a version of Max that's operating over in your head and in your social reality and my partner's social reality and mm -hmm. my kid's social reality mm -hmm. that has that is, I think, makes whatever it is we want to we're talking about really on this philosophical level when we're talking about Max uh, bigger than my own sort of conscious sort of mm, process mm, flip side you know the conscious process is the thing that is here right now that i'm whatever i am that i'm appreciating and at some point it won't be here it'll be off doing something else if it's doing anything at all so yeah who knows? yeah uh, <laughs> of getting a bit meta <laughs> i know right right brilliant I mean, well, the I'll stop us here. Like we could then start to reflect yeah. on like, you know, the process between us and yeah, sure. right, the, the process between the listeners. So like, I think, but point made, there's really yeah. beautiful layers of experience that are co-creative. Like you're, you're not some, uh, maybe now I'll just reveal kind of a bit of my point of view from my conscious sure. seat of like, I'm not just some autonomous, isolated kind of 
ball bearing bouncing around, bouncing off other ball bearings. Like there's something between us that is yeah. all of us that is uh, not any of ours alone to own that we're kind of all participating in or creating something. Yeah. And uh, if we can like get a little more playful with that, a little more conscious of that, maybe we don't always have to drop into the same kind of patterns that seem to be playing themselves out in lots of corners of our lives that can be pretty harmful or just boring kind of yeah. kind of a best case scenario <laughs> yeah i totally agree like in, in the you know i think it's so easy to see those strict those uh connections and to feel those connections as as, as strictures or bindings right mm-hmm. that, that uh, mm-hmm. you know one ends up being crushed by the contexts in which one operates um but it, it is possible and many people do this work of trying to not only challenge the to just to challenge the sort of the view of those connections as mm-hmm. iron to like try mm-hmm. to find some room to play about to give other people room to play around also yeah. um there's a i don't know how relevant this is but there's a um there's a Zhuangzi story the uh, you know the butchered ding have you run into this uh Zhuangzi no story no but i can't wait so to this hear is, it uh, so this is wonderful it's um you know the 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 emperor I think this is the emperor. Maybe it's the chancellor. The guy who's doing the emperor's accounts is like looking through all the household accounts, trying to balance the budget. And he notices that the the, the cook there, the butcher, Ding, has not like charged anything against his knife expense account in like 10 years. <laughs> and, you know, this is a, the, this accountant's a chancellor fellow really wants to make sure that he understands like what's going on, that there's not some hidden expense somewhere that's being compensated. And he goes down. And uh, finds the butcher. The butcher's cutting somebody up, and uh, you know, like a, cutting a, an animal up, and asks Butcher Ding. It's it says here that you haven't changed your knives in ten years. Could that possibly be right? And Butcher Ding says, "Oh no, absolutely, that's right." Um, the guy says, "Please explain. Uh, how does that work?" Possibly looking for efficiencies that can be realized elsewhere in the imperial operations, you know. And and, and Butcher Ding says, "Well, the thing is, you got to recognize that the knife." The edge of the knife has no thickness, and the the spaces that between the joints of the animal have thickness. So, really, when you're putting an edge of no thickness into a space that has thickness, there's plenty of room to move around. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sometimes you need to like chill out and take a deep breath and go very slowly and just sort of figure out where the space actually is. But as long as you can find the space, zoop, zoop, then the thing just falls apart. Mm. You know, there endeth the lesson. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> yeah, there is uh, so much, so much richness in there. And, and, I, and I have to say, I, I, in this moment, I'm, I'm like layering that story over how I engage with your writing, which has a, a sharpness to it. It has like an edge to it, an intensity to it, a uh, a sort of like I'm going, to, I'm going to poke and prod and find these spaces where we can kind of pull back a curtain or make something that seems, you know, kind of implicit to reality actually just a construct. And then I'm going to make something new with it. So I'm appreciating your writing has a bit of that kind of quality to it of like, all right, I'm just going to. And I wonder how that lands with you. Thank you. Well, I, that's something that I hope to achieve. I, I think of. On a, on a very 
on a conscious level, and there's like a lot of different levels to the process, right? Mm-hmm. On a conscious level, something I'm often thinking about, especially in the, the craft sequence, the sort of more out there fantasy work that I do, but even in something that's relatively grounded, like Last Exit, um, there are a lot of, um, I say metaphors, but I don't think that gets to the heart of the situation. There are a lot of invisible and implicit forces that structure our lives or attempt to that emerge from the interaction of people and people in the environment. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to write traditional, uh, well, I say traditional, but really like mid-century realist narrative about these kinds of things, right? If you want to write a story in which government is present or a story in which law is present, um, really like present, like a character or mm-hmm. uh, sort mm-hmm. of a driving force, pretty quickly the tools of extremely realistic uh, social portraiture fiction feel, at least for me, and, and you know, in my own life, kind of insufficient to the task. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be a little bit of the dream of the weirdness in order to capture the sense of what it is like to live, to encounter a bureaucracy, or to live in a place that has a sewer system, and yeah. to live or or power to live in a universe in which so much of what we do on a daily basis is. Uh, engage with vast systems that are like beyond our uh, control isn't even the wrong word ability to conceive Mm -hmm. like you know Mm -hmm. a a smartphone um i i think this is pretty safe to say that i could sift all seven and some odd however many billion people there are on the planet without finding one who understands everything that's going on inside a working boot upable smartphone, right? Like who could, and by this, I mean, before, you know, somebody out there in tech land is like, well, actually me, I mean, (laughs) you know, let's say that you're starting from, you're starting from sand and cobalt and a little bit of gold and, you know, make for me one of these, how many pyramids worth of labor is involved in the creation of this extremely consumer fungible object that over the last 15 ish years has become a indelible part of life around the globe, whether you have one or not, Mm. you exist in a universe in which a lot of people do have them. This is not, and yet it's not something that we can conceive of all the way. It's not even Mm -hmm. certainly not on the level of, you know, I used to have a suitcase typewriter or my parents had a suitcase typewriter when I was a kid. And I used to like open that up and you could see if you push down the E key, then this lever goes here and this lever goes here and this lever goes here and there's a counterweighted thing and this hammer goes thwap and it makes an E on the page. That's the mechanism. Now, could I have built it? No, but I could see how it worked. I, functionally, I have a piece of magic glass in my pocket. Um <laughs> It requires a whole bunch of massive, uh, you know, systems totally beyond my control or, mm. and yet to which my existence as a consumer user, whatever is essential on some level, uh, to get me like the weather 
on this, the thing that for, for, for my phone to tell me what it's like outside, which I myself could tell by stepping <laughs> like 10 feet that way. Um, I, I don't know. This is all good. My, I guess the point that I'm reaching for here is that when I start to think about and look at the world around, really like just sort of scratch the surface of it and look at it, it has this big, weird mystical dimension and the tools of fantasy dream science fiction to a certain extent feel like the most natural way to talk about it Mm -hmm. in a in a way that's the language that many human cultures have been using for thousands and thousands of years to deal with other stuff that absolutely controlled and shaped their lives over which they felt they had very little agency like war or the weather or trade or death or destiny yeah wow so much in there <laughs> sorry I, like i sort of know i'm i love this we're in the right place for this kind of stuff and now i'm just sitting with like i want to go in four directions here which one feels feels the juiciest so first i want to name i love your question how many how many like pyramids worth of labor does it take to make this object that so many of us take for granted so in a way we're like carrying around like this these pyramids these kind of like wonders of the world (laughs) in our pocket yeah you know that like if you walked out into the deserts of egypt today which you can still do and actually see the pyramids versus just finding a picture of them on your phone there's something about that encounter that people speak to yeah the encounter of actually being at Machu Picchu and like sitting in the in the room that no longer has a roof, but you can see the mountains in the distance versus seeing the picture and starting yeah. to imagine yourself into the fabric and texture that made that particular, I don't know, uh, arist- aristocratic resort or whatever it, what it actually was, however it was used, made it possible. Mm-hmm. That kind of awe and wonder. It's really hard to experience that awe and wonder when you just look at this kind of piece of magic glass. It's like, oh, this is cool and shiny and useful. And yeah, I can play bejeweled on it. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it is, there is something really awesome about it in the fullest sense of, of that word. And uh, it's, I wonder, it, yeah, yeah go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, well, I just, I, I wonder about that. Um, you know, there's a, if I, if I wanted to be like really like old school 90s conspiracy theorist about it, <laughs> Um, it, it seems, you know, before, before the conspiracies got real weird when it was just like, you know, moon bases and stuff, um, and Stanley Kubrick, uh, that, um, you know, it, well, let me take a little di- bit of a different tack. It, it does feel sometimes like there's a, a sort of game that we're playing or that we are involved in to pretend that the world works the way it did 60 years ago mm. or even mm. 20 years ago. And that, 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 um, part of the, um, art of the creation of something like the iPhone on this massive consumer scale and then it's a whole smartphone and smartphone technology and app industry sort of spawned off of that was not to imagine a device that changes the way that like almost everybody does almost everything on some level of depth right but to imagine it like not to imagine the awe-inspiring implications of that but to make it look and feel and be easily describable as something that you know like mm. oh you, well you, you know mm. many of you have used a computer before that's sort of what this is many of you have a cell phone 
that's sort of what this is. And then you, you know, slot it into those spaces and don't think about it like the versus a project like the pyramids or Angkor Vat or something like that. This is intended to impress you with the mm. disruptive, majestic, like transformative nature of the art that has been brought to bear in this physical space. Mm. Whereas we yeah. really try to make a television, we try to make it not that the television looks like a television, but that that we think that this television that we have on the wall is basically like the television that's you know you know one had in 1992. Yes. <laughs> well, and and now now at the risk of kind of picking up the kind of conspiracy yeah. theory energy sure. here, right? Which I'm. Yeah, we could. I don't want to get down the whole rabbit hole of how freaking weird some of the current conspiracies <laughs> yeah. are. Although your essay on Gene Wolf connects to me to that in a way. So okay, cool, we'll great, circle, great. Maybe great. we'll Let's circle there, to yeah. that. Maybe we'll circle that. But just in this moment, I am in touch with like, even if I don't agree with most of the details of the kind of conspiracy conspiracy theory kind of stance, there's something intuitively understandable about it in that like, kind of like. This is a bit pernicious that this little, um, <laughs> oh, no, it's just a little computer in your pocket. Oh, it's yeah, just it's fine. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cause yeah, it costs a thousand dollars because it's really, I mean, it's look how nice it is. And yeah. yeah, yeah, it's dinging at you and shouting at you. And like, you know, there's mm -hmm. a whole, you know, wave of research about the kind of the immediate first person negative impacts that, that these little, seemingly sexy devices mm -hmm. can have but like at writ large at the level of society or or kind of globe yeah. it can start even as we try and pu push it down like oh this is normal yeah. just don't look behind them don't look for the man behind the curtain it can start to feel like there must be someone behind the curtain who is uh kind of secretly creating this this machine to control you <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i'm coming for coming for you and then you when you notice that you can kind of go oh like I'm, I've broken free from the matrix, but yeah, like, who's the so man? Yeah. Who's the, who is it? You know? And, and so I can kind of understand like there's something, it's not so awe inspiring, but it's a little bit, uh, dis unsettling to start to notice some of these, uh, kind of, uh, infrastructures or systems or processes that, that we've just given ourselves over to. I wonder yeah. what you make of that. No, it, it raises a, a lot of things, surfaces a lot of things for me. Um, I'm not sure how to put any of them exactly into words. There, as somebody who is really like into the, you know, nineties, um, sort of X-Files era of yes, yeah. conspiracy stuff, right? Like, uh, you know, back in the day, like thinking about, you know, the CIA killed Kennedy on behalf of their secret alien masters who they've been in conversation with through the, like all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, it does make it, for juicy entertainment. Uh, yeah, whatever else. It, yeah. Yeah, it did. And, you know, and it's like a, you know, teenager, it was fun to get a sense of, Ooh, maybe there's, there's really something going on. Um, before I sort of abashedly, put the you know did did all of the math myself to like understand the anti-semitic undergirding of a lot of this stuff that felt like fun entertainment at the time um you know realizing oh you trace it back and who, but who's the you know they're in control who's the them you're like oh uh 
Well, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, flip side, it, the, it does, I mean, it's, it was difficult in the 2000, in 2008, and it's difficult today to like look at the news without realizing, oh, there are some people who are, they're not, the thing is, they're not shadowy people. Some of them, you might not know their names, but, you know, some of them really try to make sure you know their names who are out there trying to, you know, play, play the world for their own Mm -hmm. ends. Mm -hmm. However, I guess this is the, this is maybe this is, this is part of the, the, the vibe that I'm feeling right now. There's an easiness to this simple, there's an easiness to the logic of the conspiracy theory in that it keeps locking, um, it keeps grounding back to character in a way that mm. as a writer, I mm. find very relatable, but also encourages me to be very suspicious because when reality starts feeling like a fiction, that maybe there can be one clue that you're in a fiction rather than in reality. Nice. Um, it, it's so, easy to think oh there must be some malevolence behind it because it's scarier to think that many of the people involved throughout this chain are sort of doing what their incentives are prompting them to do and it's almost like there's this uh, mercurial like heavy metal concentration of evil that occurs Mm. where, you know, every choice in the value chain, um, like, Oh, well this, you know, what do we want? Well, we want people to be using our application, right? Yeah. Simple. We want people to use the application. If they use the application, maybe they're happy. They spend some money. We get some, some ad dollars. That seems reasonable enough, right? So, okay. Figure out how to make people use the app more. Well, if we do this, then they use the app more. Okay. And then each one of the, what we should do this more. Oh, we figured out some ways to like, you know, tie this in with other things. And oh, other people will tell us what other apps will tell us what people are doing that we can then use to make people use our app more. Okay. Cool. And like each one of these decisions feels like, uh, uh, very reasonable within the context in which it is set. And each one along the way, you're like picking up a tiny bit of this heavy metal <laughs> mm, <laughs> until the overall mm-hmm, concentration mm-hmm. of these decisions leads to, uh, well, yeah, so we put this piece of glass in your pocket and uh, encouraged you to pay for it because all of your friends are there. And we got a, and then we got a whole bunch of people who are really, really good at designing slot machines to design everything that you do on it. And that's, and now you feel really good about yourself when you're, when the program that we put on it to tell you how much time you're spending on it tells you that you spent less than an hour a day just looking at this piece of glass, uh, in the course of the last week. You know, it's like, you know, you, you start from very, decisions that feel very reasonable and you end up in a pretty unreasonable yeah like satirically wild uh situation (laughs) yeah beautifully put yeah thanks for for working that through and and maybe just the one other piece that can Mm -hmm. certainly not there's not one other piece there are many other pieces but another piece that perhaps can amplify like once you start to kind of get aware 
that it's this kind of a cruel or this distillation of small choices that don't on the face of them seem particularly evil, mm-hmm. there's a way in which, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, there's a way in which that can kind of be a, a bit unsettling. And you said earlier, because it's like, well, there's no evil bad guy to just yeah. go, if we just go stop that bad guy, we can fix yeah. this. We actually start to see or feel intuitively, at least, that there's some bigger process at work that's bigger than our individual agency. And that comes with its own kind of um, sort of existential crisis. Yeah, it destabilizes our sense. You were talking, I forget if this came up while we were recording or in the little bit that we were talking before, but you were talking a bit about the destabilizing of the, oh, this is in our the first chunk of our conversation mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. identity, right? We have the sense of, ourselves as these individual like ping pong balls that are kind of bouncing around. But I I think when you start to tease out the ways in which we're all involved, implicated, um, complicit in some cases, resistant in other cases, in these big sort of global systems, uh, even local systems, um, it really starts to destabilize that question of what are we? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the, Timothy Merton, um, the philosopher, has this concept of the hyper object, which comes up when you start looking into this, the sort of objects that are non-local, that are weird and distributed, that could and perhaps even are present in any given instance, but have don't have physical reality and do have physical reality, but not localized in place the mm-hmm. way that like this cup that I'm holding up right now is. Um Global warming is climate change is a real thing. It can be felt, observed. It's physically trackable, um, but it's also ephemeral or, or sort of hard to grab onto in the sense that, like, it, you know, it's a very nice day outside right now in the fifties in February in Boston. You know, first when we first moved here uh, 10, 12 years ago, I would have thought, oh, wow, this is a really unexpected thing, and it's a little less unexpected now. If I'm paying mm-hmm. close attention to my own mm-hmm. memory, mm-hmm. but it's also not entirely alien to my experience of living in Boston 10, 15 years ago. Occasionally you got days like this. So is this climate change right here or not? And it's sort of unsettling. It, 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 it's the decidability of the question. It's kind of weird. Um, so that's 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 strange and interesting and you know it raises these questions about like ourselves i think you know what to what extent am i the autonomous uh sort of autonomous like small l liberal actor right like the the sort of theoretical uh monad (laughs) i don't even know if that's quite the right term um it's bouncing around having physical interactions and sort of conceptual interactions with others. And, and that's adjusting my vector in the world. And to what extent am I actually this kind of, uh, intersection of mm-hmm. a whole bunch of much larger systems? And mm-hmm. to what extent are we mm-hmm. all that? Mm-hmm. Can, Two beautiful be questions. A, Max, can you please answer those them? questions as clearly as possible right now? So. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> all right. Let's go, man. Well, I, I, I don't tell know. Us. I don't have, tell us I don't, what we are, Max. That's all I really want is just tell know. me what I am. Tell me what I am. I don't have any answers, man, but I do think that, like, this, I, I, you know, at the risk of just sort of verging on 2 a.m., like, fill class, bull sessions. Yeah. Uh, 
It's kind of what the Wonder Dome is. It's just Excellent. a QAM Phil Quest Bowl session. So rad. <laughs> okay, good. I found my people. Um, I, one thing I take from it is that sort of destabilizing feeling that you're talking about. And, but another thing I tr- I take from it, and sometimes this is just something I try to take away from it, so, mm. is uh, a an occasion for compassion, mm. not compassion that. I, I would hope deadens the possibility of action or sort of is like, ah, oh, this is fine, you know, but <laughs> recognizing that if in a universe where rather than Dr. Doom being like some guy who's out there in Latveria cackling in the armor and everything, <laughs> uh, you know, Dr. Doom is instead sort of evenly distributed throughout the entire functioning of the economy and is concentrated more in some places than in others. But, you know, you can both, it both occasions a sort of question of like a kind of self-righteousness that sometimes Mm -hmm. is implicit to this like larger systems thinking of like, aha, it is me, the individual, fuck, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stop it. I see the system now. I I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you go off and get weird and disappear into the mountains, uh, as, <laughs> as the man says. Um, but you can be like, oh, okay, this is present in me too. And an occasion for like, okay, what kind of networks of alternative action am I part of? Can I be part of? Like what other, if this is a force that is present in the world, um, then there, it follows that there are other forces. It is mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. The danger, I think, is in falling into this like sort of Foucauldian, like Gnostic demiurge kind of space where you're entirely all reality is entirely enclosed in pernicious activity. And like your only solution is to get out um, right. by the agency of some transcendent uh, operation. But thinking, oh, wait, no, actually, well, at least this is the I don't know. The point of view I try to have on it is that there are a lot of systems in conscious in, in in contention with one another in conflict and superposition mm-hmm. and uh you know we are trained we are sort of maybe evolutionarily inclined to look for the threatening ones but you can also look for i don't know this is you know so far so uh mr rogers i guess but you can look for the ones that are out there to help or create a little bit of space or uh I like that. So like Dr. Doom might be evenly distributed with various varying intensity at certain localities, but so is Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. So is Mr. Rogers. So is the, so is the Buddha. So is, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Captain America? Nah. Right, sure. Not. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. Knows, you know, anyone can anyone can wear the mask, right? So, <laughs> so you go so for the Spider-Man in it all. But yeah, for sure. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the ways that cultural sort of dream work cult, like cultural dream work the kind of stuff that and that leans into surreality yeah. can help um, yes yeah yeah i mean there, if if we if we sort of give in or say yes or accept the sort of pure the kind of what you described as like the we're encased in that demiurge sort of we're, we're like that that it is actually the doctor doom that rules us all yeah then it's really seductive to like find the person who says like, I will save you. I will free you. I will, yeah. and, you know, so you, so these authoritarian figures who can come along and say, 
here's your problem. It's, it's, you know, pick your ethnicity, pick your, your kind of, uh, identity, pick your whatever. And I'll solve that for you. And then we will be free from this evil that you sense around you Mm -hmm. is a much less actually, uh, empowering point of view than the one you're attempting to articulate, which is to say, yeah, it ain't that easy. Sorry, kiddo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And also it ain't because it ain't that easy because it ain't that simple. There are other forces to align with or to to bring into your awareness that might remind you that we're all sort of in this together and we can we can work it from whatever little latitude or leverage we have to work it so let's see if we can let's see if we can find some hope in the system too yeah Mm. yeah that's fun play yeah Mm. Mm. that's the play again and and I've been wanting to talk about last exit for a bit. So maybe this yeah. is where I'll kind of try and make that my segue gracefully. But you you work a lot with, uh, I, I haven't read enough of your your body of work to say if this is true or not. But it, and what I have read, you work a lot with um, characters who do find themselves at a position of um, pretty heightened agency and power as compared mm-hmm. to like, maybe how most of us actually feel in reality. Like there's <laughs> yeah. something, there's something about your, there's something about that that you like to play with that in yeah. particular in last exit really shows up as, um, and I don't want to give anything away, right? There's always this. So, so maybe spoiler alert for anyone listening, I'm <laughs> going to try and not do that, but, but maybe so forewarned, uh, you're kind of, my experience of the book is you're really working with that question through the lens of like, what is good and evil? What is it that we're really trying to accomplish for ourselves as a species? And maybe to sort of summarize on the one hand, you have this kind of dark force, this this sort of satanic, you know, force that's really scary to mm-hmm. most people who encounter it, at least at first, at least at first kind of encounter. But you have some people who can use that force for good, as far as mm-hmm. we can tell. And on the other hand, you have these forces of kind of control, uh, mm-hmm. especially embodied by by a kind of cowboy entity and yes. some of his his demon denizens, his followers, <laughs> including one of the main characters in the book. But like, there's this tension between kind of like, here's safety, here's what we know, here's this world of like control and clarity. And yes, it means sometimes you got to shoot first and ask questions later, but that's worth the trade offs. Mm-hmm. And here's this world of what we don't know. And it's scary and dark and tenderly and big and just our job is to keep that at bay. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and, and so you've written this really pretty intense, dark book kind of working with that was my, that was my experience sure. in the book with that question. Yeah, of like, yeah. what do we do about my experience writing it? Yeah. Okay, sure. cool. So what do we like, what is it ours to do around this tension between what we try and control and protect versus what we just surrender to and and maybe maybe discover on the other side of that surrender like a really surprising playful the end without giving anything away is wonderfully yeah. playful i love the end of the book just the the signals going up at the end of the book i was like oh that was so worth the payoff and oh, thank you yeah so i don't know I, I'm, I'm not really asking a question but but i'm wonder like as i mirror that back to you what what's coming up for you because it feels connected to what we've been talking about it does it does yeah i mean i think the I think the question of agency and the question of power is is sort of um is at the heart 
of a lot of this work and in, in last exit, especially, um, sort of what, what does it mean to have, hmm. what are we seeking when, when we seek it? Um, who has it? What does it actually look like? And to what extent does it, um, enable to what, to what extent does it enable and to what extent does it control? Um, it, I think many of us have an experience of having a certain amount of power, not necessarily on the global sort of level that, uh, that, a, that a character in a dream or a character in a, in a work of fantasy or, or science fiction will have, but um, in our sort of social lives, the ability to and in their communal lives, the ability to help somebody or not help them, the ability to create mm. space or take it up. Um, in the in the last exit, we have characters who are, for the most part, I think, trying to learn how to be in the world, which means like how to be, uh, how to build lives for themselves, how to be safe, how to acquire some patch of grounds that they can kind of call their own or, or, um, or they can raise their family, how they can insulate themselves from all of the potential ways that things can go horribly wrong in life. You know, there's a, there's a sort of sense in which power position can be a proxy for safety. Mm. Um, mm. especially when it comes to the kinds of power that you get by operating within the rules of a system, um, accumulating a certain kind of social capital or wealth or, um, connections or right number of letters behind your name or, or something like that. And by buying into these systems by sort of investing in them and working for them. Like the more that you do, the more terrifying it can feel, the, the more risk you can feel in a way, like the higher you climb, the clearer the fall becomes mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever extent you've achieved some kind of security in your space. Um, it, I don't know, in, in the moments where I have felt secure i've also felt oh uh you know looking back like oh gosh there are a lot of people who for any number of reasons don't have have not had access to these resources or just the dice haven't fallen out for them the way they did for me um and you know there but for the grace of god or even you know the the feeling of like i used to be in this bad place and i never want to go back there um, those can lead to a kind of desperate clinging even to systems that are pretty insidious and, and like hurtful to ourselves, hurtful to mm -hmm. others. Mm -hmm. um, the this is maybe most, yeah. I feel like the, the, this is maybe most embodied in the book, what you're describing. And I, I wish I could remember their names now. That's often what leaves me first upon reading. Oh, the I book, hear you. The me names. too. Me too. But, the, but there's this sort of driving character who in a way has sort of, in a way to protect herself from love and love loss has yeah. sort of opted out as much as one can from that social system that 
her friends were all part of. They all went to this, you know, fancy pants school and yeah. discovered this power, magical power that they could have. And, and it seemed like they could change the world. And then it all went sideways. And so we start, all of that has happened. We start with a character who just is kind of like living you out of the car. Zelda. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Zelda, Zelda. And yeah, then on the other hand, we, we have a character who's a dear friend of Zelda, a guy who's become like a, a billionaire uh, entrepreneur yeah, who like, ish. yes, yeah. ish. And um, yeah, they seem to kind of embody these two poles. On the one hand, Zelda is like, it's all like, it's all a mess. Why are you all playing with that? On the other hand, you have issues like it's all terrible and we have to control every, we have, yeah. <laughs> if we don't look in those dark corners, someone else will. So we have to be the last line in the sand. And yeah. and yeah, I don't know. Like talk to me about how those, how those two characters and, and the friends who maybe exist between them work the, that question of uh, control versus sort of exit. For sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Exit very literally. I mean, they're all dealing with their own kinds of fears. I think, um, Ish and Zelda do operate on it's, it's funny. It's like they're, uh, they're, they're polar, but they also are kind of right next to each other in the the way that, you know, you're looking at a radian diagram and it's just like zero plus epsilon and like two pi minus epsilon are right next to each other, even <laughs> though one is the smallest di distance from zero that you can go and the other one's the largest distance yes, from zero you yes. can go without going yep. back around on it, right? Um, so, so, uh, you know, they, they both see themselves as lines in the sand in a way. Zelda feels that the entire sort of system edifice of society is just about to fall apart because uh, for any number of reasons, including these sort of cracks, literal cracks in the like the walls of reality, this kind of rot that is seeping in from the outside that they kind of let in with the by working the magical powers that they mm -hmm. worked with mm -hmm. back in college. And she thinks, well, none of what all of you guys are doing, having kids, having professional lives, you know, participating in society, none of that is remotely going to address the real problem which is this sort of vast threat this sort of undermining flood that's coming in need to stop it need to keep that outside and only it ends in the process atone for like the the loss of my lover my friends my my partner who is like now gone you know out into the yeah. darkness out into the out into the the rot sal sort of the love of zelda's life is just, she just lost her um so she feels sort of terrified of this incoming darkness, completely unable to distract herself from it with the sort of typical um, issues of life, you know, uh, and obsessed with her own failure. Um, and all the way on the other side, you've got Ish, who sort of came back from the same failure, the same adventure that they all went on, and um, his solution was to throw himself into our worlds, into like the, the the levers and mechanisms of power as much as he possibly could, gain as much wealth, position, status, so that he could throw all of that into trying to find some kind of solution to like hammer, close as many of the cracks as he could to uh, to sort of mm. 
see because one of the ways that cracks uh, the, the one of the ways that the rot sort of seeps into the world in, in last exit is through like places of uncertainty so it's just really interested in surveilling everything is uh knowing exactly where everybody is and what they're right, saying there's and an what's going on every single thing then uncertain then we reduce uncertainty to maybe not nil but close enough that it close that, enough yeah. close enough for government work, you know, and yes. <laughs> he's had to make all sorts of um, compromises for of his own sort of ethical position and like systems and construct all sorts of systems to allow himself to get there. But for him, it's all worth it because I'll be able to do this thing that is absolutely essential for the, you know, the survival of humanity, for my friends, for my safety. Um, so in a way, they're even though one of them is deeply invested in the architecture of our society and the other one is like literally living out the backseat of her car. Um, they're both, I think, driven by a kind of fear of the possibility mm. of mm. change mm. and what the, the rot presents, like what is going to happen if it all breaks down? What will, what comes next? What will that look like? Um, and their answer is, I don't know, but it's, terrifying and i don't want any part of it um something i was reaching for in the book and i hope um i managed is i i don't think that either of them are entirely baseless in the fear that they have like there's a really easy reflexive like you know well just step outside of the circle of safety you know, go out step past the walls of the fortress. And, yeah. Step outside your comfort zone. It's like, yeah, man, there is some shit outside the comfort zone. Uh, <laughs> you know, some some people, uh, perhaps, you know, many are the folks in the world who's do not have the luxury of the comfort zone being something that is, uh, you know, relatively more or less secure from outside intrusion, like as a, you know uh white like cis presenting straight presenting kind of person wandering through the world uh, my comfort zone is less likely to be randomly mm -hmm. disrupted by um or not randomly <laughs> very intentionally disrupted by some of those fast distributed dr doomy kind of systems mm -hmm. and their mm -hmm. uh localized avatars than others um experience might be but um uh, yeah, so they're not baseless. The, like it makes they're not sense baseless. that they're afraid. The fear, they make sense. Yeah, that's that's yes. Thank you for bringing it back there. Yeah, it makes sense that they're afraid. Um, it, you know, revolutions could be terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, I. This like this is gonna be a little like college admissions essay, I guess, but. I don't know. I, you know, I was in Cambodia briefly and I did some touring around mm. and, you know, there's this like high school that got repurposed into a political prison with, you know, like torture and battery cables and all this kind of, and you just, you, you realize a, that that, that happens and can happen and that, that there's nothing yeah, you have to be a, like a real, you have to be really distorted in your view of the universe, I think, to think that that can't happen where you live, like that that couldn't happen here. Um, that I mean, that's one of the psychological defenses that I think a lot of people sort of enact pretty instinctively. Is to, yes, true. To, el to elsewhere it. Yeah, yeah. That, that happens over there, right? Yeah, and, yeah. 
But if you start um, to like wake up a bit and pay attention, like both Zelda and Ish are trying to do, like it, gets, it can get pretty scary pretty quickly, especially <laughs> yeah. if you're looking for it. Right. You're looking for the seams if you're looking for the possibilities. Um, and it, it's so easy when you confront that possibility to lock in on like, gosh, the only thing that, that, there is the only way forward is to seek as much security as possible yeah. Yeah. but then you know you find yourself in a place where you can kind of suffocate yourself on your own security <laughs> so this is the tension that i was trying to make real in these characters and their lives like they're and 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 um you know for for characters like uh ramon and and, and sarah and the books like the, you know sarah has you know, her family has an experience of genocide on on american soil um you know she's living with that and one of the decisions that she and other people in her family have made is like we're gonna you know get some jobs and find some place in the system in which we have a certain amount of respect and maybe it won't last and maybe it'll get taken away from us or maybe we'll have to fight to keep it or something but you know the 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 house the kids the like the ability to have a kind of life that matters. That's a real thing. That's very important. Um, so the, the tension, but I don't know. It's there's, there's no, I, I'm not sure there are any easy answers, but I think, I don't think there are any easy answers, but in last exit, I was really interested in this, the various reasons people seek a certain kind of power, which is also very much a kind of security. Mm -hmm. The reasons they might mm -hmm. construct that for themselves, they might need that. Um, and those reasons, many of them are very legitimate. <laughs> but speaking from my own experience, I can find myself uh, in situations where that does, where, where that kind of desperate grasping after security does not offer all that much breathing room. And can sometimes become like a, I don't know, an Iron Maiden or a torture device that you've mm. trapped yourself mm. in. Mm. You make all these choices, again, to that sort of heavy metal kind of accretion point, you make these choices, you're like, okay, I'll trade off a little bit of this for a little bit of security and a little bit of this for a little bit of security. And then you find yourself in a just profoundly untenable situation and you look for other options and all the other options feel like, feel terrible. And some, mm. so like some of the things that are outside beyond the firelight are threatening <laughs> some of the yeah. other ways you know my life could be organized or instantiated in the world pretty fucking scary but if you but all of the other all of the other things that are out there are not the the like the monster zones <laughs> i don't know yeah i mean there's I there's know. a phrase to say beyond the pale in ireland yeah. and it was like you know out beyond the pale which was some sort of you know, colonial, English colonial sort of line upon which on this side of the pale civilization existed and out beyond the pale. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you go, go at your own risk. You know, we, we can't protect you anymore out there, mm -hmm. but also, and this is what I think the book does so beautifully is like, you're working really genuinely on the one side with fear and the way fear is justified, but also a fear taken to its extremes produces um, its own kind of totalizing brutal force. And I think, yeah. and for me, at least in my reading, that's most embodied by the cowboy, 
Yeah, for sure. As like, of course you're afraid. Look what's beyond mm-hmm. the pale. I'm yeah. here to keep you safe. And I'll shoot you in the head if I have to, because that'll keep you safe, right? Like yeah, it's yeah. that like willingness to go all the way down the logic of security. Yeah, your and, world has walls and are on the walls there are men with guns, you know, yes. that, that thing, yeah. Yeah, so so we also like what I think the uh, experience from the book that I found quite, although I got to say, man, you like you, you, you work it, you take that <laughs> like down to the bone, the like, you know, I think it's like a 500 page book and like 490 pages are like, this shit is scary and dark, but then like, okay, there is this, this intimation. And again, I don't yeah. want to give away too much of like, well, also beyond the pale yeah, are possibilities that we literally cannot see mm-hmm. because it's as if they are in another world because we're saying our world is this, not that. And yeah. since we can't see them, they'll never be possible unless we're willing to uh, actually see what's inside the crack and to actually see what that kind of vague, somewhat scary, ambiguous other entails in its mm-hmm. in its richness and complexity. Absolutely. And that maybe there is also like wildness and beauty and um, another way of organizing society and yeah. dot, 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 and dot, dot, dot. And so, then yeah, something that might actually save us or, or you know, you know, there a, po- a massive creative possibility may rest out there and like, or can be created out of what we find out there. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you keep, you bring up the pale, like it, 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 that is of course, as you said, also literally a colonial institution, right? Yes. Like this is, the the civilization as established by um you know to to use your your sort of origin story there is established by like english colonial authorities <laughs> with regard to an impressed like militarily occupied settler colonized space um so yeah uh there's there is something outside i and, and to accept the logic of the pale, you know, to accept the logic of the cowboy is to refuse yourself to, to lose access to any mm, other possibility. Mm, mm. Um, you, you know, if you, if you kneel before that thing, then many other doors become closed to you or other potential paths. Mm. Um, I, I think a lot, and I thought a lot while I was writing this story, though, there's not much uh, sort of plot connection. Uh, about a Lois McMaster Buyold short story called The Borders of Infinity. And it's a beautiful, tight science fiction story uh, in her uh, Miles Vorkosigan universe about a prison break, kind of. Um, our, our main character, Miles, who's like a super sneaky, snarky, intelligent, uh, but without much like physical strength or, or capacity because he's, you know, his bones are congenital are not congenitally, but are weak because of a sort of childhood accident mm-hmm. um, assassination attempt. Anyway, this is just like getting deep and I'm, I'm just getting deep into the weeds to excuse myself for the Vorkosigan fans who are going to listen to the podcast and come at me like, you know, <laughs> that's not a Vorkosigan fans listening. In, who so knows, man? Out. They're Buckle everywhere. Up. We're Buckle everywhere. <laughs> We're everywhere. Um, but uh so, so Miles, who we usually meet as the captain of a mercenary company or as a spy in some situation, has just been dropped into a prison on uh, a sort of barren wasteland. And the prison has is like under this giant force field dome. And the way it's run is there's no there are no wardens for the 
there are no people who are like keeping order in the prison. It's just they drop all the prisoners into the dome and leave them there. And then they drop supplies occasionally through the dome and mm. leave society mm. up to whatever the prisoners want to do inside. I, I like, promise, by the way, for anyone who's listening, that's not my vision for the Wonder Dome downstream. I don't <laughs> want it to be a prison in a barren wasteland. Yeah, but anyways, no, 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 continue. no. It wasn't, wasn't meaning to imply. But um, so, so yeah, so, so it's, uh, it is on the A level, on like the extreme plot level, this really cool, fun, well-worked-through story of how this guy who has dropped without any resources in this extremely unforgiving situation and without a lot of physical ability to like work his will on the world like he's not mm. a he's not mm. he's not like a kung fu badass he's not conan he's not going to be able to like win the prison yard fights navigates the space and sort of tries to get toward freedom nice but there's this recurring uh theme throughout of the extent to which this like you know invisible force field dome in which men the characters are stuck presents a sort of wall for their ability to imagine like everybody's kind of stuck inside the force field Mm -hmm. and so there are questions about what we should do are all questions about like how should we the prisoners who are stuck inside this force field relate to one another like who gets the supplies who whatever that they've sort of lost touch with the fact that they are many of them prisoners of war being held by an occupied power lose touch with the fact that like you know might escape be possible might a different organization of our system be allowed can we get out of here what would be required to do that do we have to be hurting each other so much um Mm, like mm, what what mm. should power look like here you know why have we settled into this reality and so the 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 title phrase like the borders of infinity comes to mean not just the edge of the wall but the the sort of prison that we construct in our minds it's a really tremendous piece of science fiction it sounds um, awesome and and uh, although it doesn't connect to the plot as you said of last exit i can really fear feel the spirit of it being invoked like the part of what the book is about is our willingness to notice the wall yeah and see what's on the other side of it yeah at the absolutely. bare minimum at the bare minimum to like be willing to walk up to it and poke it and peek over it yeah. Uh, before deciding cross. that we want it to be, yeah, and sometimes cross it before just kind of accepting, like, oh, that's the wall, so that's where that's is it. We right, and it. like being able to honor, being able to like feel the 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 sometimes very real terror of looking over the wall or of mm-hmm. when you find a crack mm-hmm. in the wall, like mm-hmm. recognizing that that fear is real and that you know people feel it for reasons, and that we all find ourselves in places where it's important to both feel and work with the fear and still step out through the crack in the wall and see what's on the other side. Mm. Like we need to go there. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't keep going like this, you know? Yeah. Max. Wow. This is awesome. I, I, uh, there's so much I wanted to talk to you about that we don't have time for. (laughs) I want to, I want to, I just want to briefly, no, again, it's like just the the richness of this means a lot to me. I want to just briefly celebrate. Um, if we had had time, I maybe even would have asked you to read something, but I want to just briefly celebrate what I, one thing that you do that I love is in the context of these richly imagined, sometimes pretty surreal, uh, world, sometimes pretty densely intricate world, sometimes pretty close to our reality, but still like with a little spin, 
in all cases, like your stories are infused with a, with pathos, with this, like, like there's just, for instance, the scene between in the first few chapters of, of Dead Country, which again is coming out on March 7th, like between Tara and what is probably a hallucination slash memory of her dead dad that just like, I was, I felt myself tearing up as I read this because it was like so true and so human and so um, tender. So I just want to like, we've kind of been working at the the sort of meta and macro levels of what your yeah. writing does. But I also just want to celebrate like at the micro person to person level that you write so beautifully. And um, yeah, just as I can't wait. I hope that people hearing this get a chance to experience that. And Last Exit is absolutely a, a beautiful, like that whole book is a beautiful example of the ways in which you dance between those two levels of abstraction. So thank, thank you for you. that. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. Uh, you know, to dangerously dangerous to employ car metaphors when you're talking about a car book, but <laughs> you know, with with the craft sequence and its sort of large externalized metaphor systems, and with Last Exit and with Empress of Forever, also, I mean, these are all. Um, oh yeah, we didn't even it, talk about it, Empress. Yeah, uh, one. yeah. No, more time, more time later, maybe. Um, but. Uh, it's important for me that, or at least the way I see it, is these um, all these big conceptual this big conceptual universe. It is real in people. Um, it, it it all comes down to human encounter, mm. <laughs> or mm. human human and numinal encounter, maybe also sometimes. But um, I really find myself drawn to people who are real for each other and to mm. these moments of mm. connection, sometimes, sometimes passionate, sometimes genuine, sometimes it's sort of dictated by the, the weight of things that can't be said or that we can't bear to say, mm. um, but it, it, that it all, it's all part of the same thing for me, that real human life and the, enormous and sometimes terrifying implications of it yeah yeah i have to say one more thing as you say that i'm i'm struck like in the same way that we talk about the phone as kind of a, a symbol or an embodiment of much bigger broader systemic forces and decisions like and that can be both terrifying and beautiful and also we can put it up you know in our pocket and not think about it all of those yeah. sort of choices of how we relate to it are possible in the same way, like I, I'm in touch with what you just described is, is proof that all of us as these, these humans, these individual, yeah. both individuals, but also interconnected, like yeah. we can, we can encounter each other either as like some two dimensional cardboard cutout that sort of, uh, it will either dispense something we want or, or get out of our way, please. I have somewhere to go or like yeah. that deep compassion that you were alluding to earlier. And I, and your stories that the, the level of character at the individual that you're working with or at the kind of interpersonal that really captures that, that there's so much that we, even if we wanted to say it, we don't know how to say, but it's there with us in every encounter that we have. And, and if we can be like 10% more aware of that with each other, you know, maybe we'll give each other a bit more grace in the midst of these wild times that we're in. Yeah, we all could use a little grace, couldn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Max. What a treat to be with you in person. And um, I know you have to go pick up the little in, a, in just a minute. But uh, where where can people go if they want to find 
find your work, pick up your books? Oh, well, that's a good question. So my website, maxgladstone.com is probably the most stable uh, rock in the shifting universe of <laughs> social <laughs> platforms and so forth at the moment. Uh, as, as long as Twitter continues to exist, I'll probably have at Max Gladstone on Twitter. I'm on uh, Mastodon at Max Gladstone. I think at wandering.shop. Um, I have an Instagram, which is also Max Gladstone. I'm not very creative when it comes to these <laughs> This handle names that, <laughs> that's yeah, okay you get to put your creativity other places so yeah that's, that's right that's right it's like it's like wearing the same black suit every day or whatever <laughs> um and uh, i have right now the most like non-fiction writing that i'm doing is on i have a substack newsletter which is i think just maxgladstone.substack.com and i write about books and gaming and reading and all basically the rule is whatever I happen to be interested in writing about for a yeah. couple hours every couple yeah. weeks. And, and I can, I, I'm a subscriber and can highly recommend that as a place to have more of these kind of 2 a.m. you know, bullshit, bull sessions asynchronously, but not, yeah. nevertheless really fun. So Thank thanks, you. Max. Really appreciate you. And thanks everyone for listening in. Wonderful to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on, and keep this show going for as long as I'm able. But 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.